Hello and welcome to this episode of the Star Wars Universe podcast. Andor is done, but our conversations about it certainly are not. Today I'm joined by two wonderful guests, Danielle of Written in the Star Wars fame and AJ Starkiller, also known as Jedi Starkiller, uh, both of them of TikTok and Twitter variety. Uh, I've really loved both of their takes. They've both come on for individual episodes, and I'm really glad that all three of us are here to kind of go over Andor. We'll talk a little bit about your feedback, although mostly that's going to wait for another episode, but just kind of take this chance to wrap up talk about a lot of things we loved and some of the issues that were kind of challenging all that more after a commercial break we have no control over Welcome back. I'm Matthew Host. I use they, them pronouns. As I said, I've got two wonderful guests. I'll let each of them introduce themselves. Uh, Danielle, you want to go first? Yes, I'm Danielle, uh, written in the Star Wars on TikTok and DannyS394 on Twitter. And also Hinge, written in the SW. Or not Hinge. Oh, my gosh. Hive. <laughs> Look, if, if, I, I know you're talking about a boyfriend. If you're exploring polyamory, this is a safe space for that. You know, um, Oh. Uh, it, it's not the kind of exposure I think of the podcast giving, but yeah, that's fine too. <laughs> One of my posts on Hive was me trying not to call Hive Hinge. <laughs> Hive, written in the SW, <laughs> not awesome. Hinge. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. wonderful. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Killer of Stars. Uh, <laughs> uh, I am AJ. I am um, Jedi underscore Star Killer. Pretty much anywhere, um, or slight variations of that in some places. Uh, like I laugh that apparently on Hinge, I mean Hive, <laughs> you can't use underscores in your name. I guess. Yeah, because I was like, oh, I'm getting there in the beginning. No one's gonna get the name this time, and uh, it wouldn't let me use an underscore. So it's just Jedi. Jedi Starkiller, and I was just like, eh. Well, I need to follow you all into Hive at some point. I'm convinced there's some kind of big conspiracy because apparently Apple has cut most of its advertising to Twitter, but meanwhile, Hive apparently works great for iOS, but doesn't work on a lot of Android devices. So as an mm. Android user, I can't get onto Hive yet. Mm. Clearly, I think this is the next round of billionaire fighting, but who knows? <laughs> we'll get onto Hive eventually, uh, but for now, I've got you both here. And so let me just start by saying kind of overall, um, uh, and AJ, since I've had Danielle more recently as a guest, AJ, I'll start with you. What's kind of been your overall thoughts on uh, Andor? I loved it. I absolutely think this, it is duking it out for my favorite piece of Star Wars media, like easily, just because one of the things that I brought up or that um, I like about this show is that it recontextualizes the original trilogy. When people say this doesn't feel like Star Wars, I feel like this gives you a reason for why Star Wars is what it is. Because we know in A New Hope that they're fighting this evil fascist empire, and yes, we see them blow up the Death Star, millions of people die really sad. But that's the only like outright evil thing that we see them do in A New Hope. We don't really understand why the rebels are fighting and between rogue one and especially Andor, now we do and so i i think it not only is it star wars not only is it great it is possibly one of the most important pieces of star wars media danielle what about yourself yeah, um, I really liked what you said, AJ, about it recontextualizing, kind of giving a reason for that. We get a little bit of that in Rebels, but it is, uh, you know, expanded upon and made much more real in Andor. 
Uh, I've enjoyed it a lot. Um, I think that it is one of the best projects Star Wars has produced mm-hmm. in a long time. Um, I don't know if it's my favorite uh, for specific reasons, which we'll get into. And Rebels like owns my heart. Rebels is my favorite Star Wars TV show. Um, That's fair. But I have really mm-hmm. enjoyed it, and I think that it has given us a lot. And I think Episode Ten specifically is maybe my most favorite written piece of media. Mm-hmm period not just in star wars but and and just to clarify that's the prison escape one right yes the prison Mm -hmm. escape one um i think that was beautifully written and uh, it's just it astounds me i watch it and i'm just in awe and that is my favorite episode of all of star wars i think yeah yeah i really hear what both you're saying i think i'm kind of in a similar place it's funny because november is among many other things no nuance november um, and I, I, I've been continually thinking about what to post for it and realizing the only thing I can post with absolutely no nuance is that I love nuance. Um, <laughs> but to me, Andor is such the, 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 the counterexample to that because it is all about nuance, you know? And I think I have friends who are either parents or child educators or, or things of the like who often mentioned that, you know, when you're teaching children, often there's this idea of like you start with the most basic principles but then you let it get more and more complex you know like taking billy's block is wrong don't take billy's block later okay well why does billy have a block and you don't maybe let's talk about that that you know getting more and more complex and more and more in depth as things go and i kind of feel like since the 70s that's what star wars has done you know star wars started with empire bad rebels good and yeah, Empire blew up a planet, Empire killed helpless people, like Empire did bad things, but it was pretty, and the flip side being, Rebels good. And then in Empire and Return of the Jedi, we get a little bit into, well, maybe if you want to do good, but you get wrapped up in like doing it the fast or easy way, like you can become bad. And maybe bad can become good, but still fairly simplistic. And then the prequels made it more complicated, and then some of the later stuff has made it more complicated. Down to this, where... You know, think about A New Hope, where, you know, it is everything about the rebellion is, you know, bright and and good and sacrifice and dying for the good struggle and a hopeless victory against all odds. Now say the same people on that team are putting guns to the heads of children to get the money to buy those X-Wings that Luke gets to fly eventually. Like, it's just such a different perspective, you know, and I... Uh, you know, I think, and and that to me, that's what I love about it. Because I don't look at it and say, okay, well, they 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 held guns or like Luthan sacrificed people, therefore it's all wrong. It's just all of this is so much more complex than we ever would have thought when it's just Empire bad, Rebels good. It came at a price, and I think yeah. that just watching the original trilogy, it's easy to forget that, easy to not see uh, what price that was. But then you add in. You add in Rebels, you add in uh, Rogue One and Andor, and it came at a very heavy price. Yeah. Is it? It's funny because the first thing that popped into my head is um, Doctor Who. Um, demons run when a good man goes to war. Like um, it's, and also there are no good men in war. I think the line that really does sum up the whole like pre-rebellion really that whole like rebellion era is saw's line to luthan that's in the trailer that um let's call it what it is let's call it war like that's what we see in this this is 
the first real war we've seen in Star Wars from this perspective. Even the Clone Wars doesn't quite get to this part. It still feels like superheroes in the Clone Wars because we've got the Jedi leading the clones. It, it, like There's still this level of like pulp to it that the original Star Wars had too, that A New Hope has too. And this was the first one that took that out of it in many ways. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it, um, especially because I think, you know, all the way back to the 70s, it was clear, like, and George Lucas himself was saying this, you know, that he meant it as an allegory about, you know, people fighting machines and people fighting empires, including, like, you know, the, the American empire in Vietnam and all this kind of stuff. And yet this one is... I feel like you could have, like, I, I do spend a lot of time in, like, you know, spaces that are talking about what revolution would look like today or, like, the history of revolutions. And I feel like you could teach histories of revolutionary thought just based on this show, mm-hmm. you know, in terms that you have everything from the people saying, <clears throat> let's work within the system to try to reform the system, like a Mon Mothma, all the way to a Luthan saying, I get to decide who lives and who dies, and I get to make things worse for everybody because eventually it'll get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and it does it. It's almost like it was too real, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. I, in a sense, am glad that it's over <laughs> because it That's was fair. it was getting too much, and like both positive reasons and negative reasons for me. And so mm-hmm. I was like, I got to Wednesday this week, and I was like, I'm kind of glad I don't have to go through the emotional like you know, anticipation for things that aren't going to show up. And then the like, you know, you know, emotional aspect of the show itself. And I'm just kind of ready to, to have something that's more lighthearted and more, uh, still emotional, but just not as, not as personal, I guess, as Andor was. And I think that's why it's so great that we can have both of those things. And like, we can have something like Andor, and that is needed and we can have something like the bad batch and something like rebels and the clone wars that is just as hard hitting i will i will say forever that rebels walked so that andor could run uh you don't have andor without rebels you just don't they have so many similar themes and um and so i like that you can have the same story or similar stories told in different ways that attract different people and I think, like I said, you need Andor, but you also need Rebels. Mm-hmm. And you get something different from each one. Yeah. I, I mean, as much as I talk about how, like, I feel like this is so much more nuanced, which in general to me means better, I I, I, I didn't notice that I necessarily felt a sense of relief after Andor. But one of the first things I did the next day was I did go back and watch A New Hope. And it was just like... You know what? I don't have to sit here and morally analyze all the characters. I can just root for Luke to blow up the Death Star. And that's kind of fun. And look, pew pew goes pew pew. And that's great. Um, Well, I don't want to do the kind of like, let's talk about the good. Let's talk about the bad. Because I think it's all wrapped up. And so, Danielle, I want to just start by inviting you. um, You know, you've talked about how there was like kind of one thing in particular that, that... Really, you were kind of waiting for it to get covered and never got covered. Let's go into that and why, why, what it was and kind of why it was particularly important to you. Yeah, so it all has to do with Cassian's backstory. Um, and 
uh, going alongside that kind of the marketing of the show itself, uh, we were continuously told that it was a migrant, that this was a migrant story, that this is something that would be really connected to these issues that migrants face or that children of migrants, grandchildren of migrants have faced before. And I think that it started off that way and it did not continue that way. And that was a big disappointment for me because it kind of made me feel like um, we are like our history with trauma uh, was kind of being used as a trope to pull a fast one on the right, to pull a fast one on um, a bunch of people. And it wasn't treated with care. And it was mm-hmm. it was used as a trope without thinking about how people would feel who have been affected by that in real life. And that's how it came across to me. Now, I know that there are people who don't feel uh, that way, and that's perfectly fine. But it came across to me that way because it was just kind of left on its own. Those first three episodes happened, and then we rarely went back to any of the themes or any of the things that were discussed as far as Cassian's backstory and as far as Marva's participation in that. And the worst part for me was that we see Marva not just take Cassian away from his home and from his family, but drug him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. She jabs a needle in him and drugs him while he is panicking and trying to get away and then takes him. And um, I've heard people, every time I bring this up, uh, everyone, you know, would say, Um, it'll happen. Like they'll bring it up again. They'll bring it up again. And then now people are saying season two and I'm hoping for season two. I have been hoping this whole time. I don't begrudge anybody that, but I knew the minute Cassian woke up on that ship and they paralleled him looking out into space with Cassian on Luthen's ship, looking out into space. And that was meant to be this exciting future for him. And I said, that is written by a white man. (laughs) Yep, yep. That is written by a white man who thinks that he can have an outsider come in and take an indigenous child off of this planet or someone who is already living there off of this planet, away from his home, away from his family, and not think of the consequences of that or think that he can cover it with just a simple line of a character saying, you can't take him, he has people here. And then that's it. (laughs) Like, it's covered with that. And so that really bothered me. And I knew from then, I was 95% sure from that moment. And that's in episode three of 12 episodes. I was 95% sure that they weren't going to bring it up again. Or if they did, it was going to be very minimal. And I held on to hope for that 5%, (laughs) that 5% chance that maybe they would. Uh, And episode 11 was when I realized they weren't going to. So episode 12 was a little easier for me to get through because I prepared myself. So they're not going to deal with it. If they do, it'll be a nice surprise, but they're not going to. And um, that just kind of, it soured my taste for the show. Mm -hmm. And I hate that. I hate it. Because I love this show. I really do. Like there's so many good and amazing and astounding things about it. But I can't help but feel a bit bitter that we lost this opportunity. And I know we lost it because Tony Gilroy has said in an interview that they filmed or they wrote uh, more about Cassian's backstory, about Canari, about what happened there. And they didn't, they had to cut it for various reasons is what he said. And um, that's almost worse to me (laughs) because why do you think you had to cut it? What were you making space for that 
took over the importance of this. Right. Yeah. So that's my feelings. Very complicated. I still love it. It's just a mixture mm-hmm. of emotions. I go up and down. Mm-hmm. I get really excited about it. And then I'm like, I can't. <laughs> well, my connection to this too is what made it really emotional for me is because I'm Latina and I'm biracial. And uh, I associate Marva, Marva's continuing, continuing of telling Cassian that he should stop looking for his sister, of you know not taking responsibility for what she did, even if that is maybe not the character's fault, but the writer's fault. Um, Mm -hmm. with, you know, being a biracial person and being told most of my life that I'm, I shouldn't look for who I am and that I shouldn't, you know, explore parts of myself that are me. And, uh, also just because there's, I'm, I'm not indigenous myself, but people in the Latin community are indigenous or have indigenous ancestry. And that is such a a raw history still. And Mm -hmm. it's a very painful history. I still see people relive and so to see it kind of treated with not the the care and respect that it deserves was very disappointing for me I'm sure yeah so I have exactly the same thoughts and almost exactly the same um history you know we're we're both um biracial Latinas and um my situation remember when i said that it was battling it out for my favorite piece of content this is the piece that makes it slip underneath this is the thing because i was critical the last time i was on this podcast of nemic because mm-hmm. we had only had the first aldani um or the second aldani episode we hadn't had the the finale of the heist yet and i said that looking at nemic He's really, he said all the right things, but as a, as someone, sorry, I saw him as a performative ally, the way he was written. Mm. And I saw Cassian interact with him the exact same way. Like the performance that Diego Luna gives is one of those are really nice words. Like you say a lot of nice things, but are you going to be there when the chips are down? And that's a nuance that that character had that I thought was brilliant. And it was absolutely squandered because he just gets to die the hero's death. He just gets to go ahead and like be exactly the person that he was saying he was. Because of course he was. Because Nemec was, as I stated then, a self-insert for every white person who gets to feel good for themselves and pat themselves on the back for saying the right thing. And that's the problem that I have with that character is it is very obviously written by a white man. And it's the exact same thing with Marva. Marva gets to steal an indigenous boy, drug him, take him away from his homeland, say, don't talk about your family, don't look for them, and then gets to have the hero's ending. Like, they both get to do that, and it doesn't feel authentic when you're on the other side of that. When those aren't your folks, it doesn't feel authentic. And like the other thing, when you were talking about don't look for your family and stuff, Cassian's sister was mentioned in the first three episodes one time when he comes back and never again. If they never bring up Cassian's sister in season two, people will forget that was ever even an arc. And that that really feels like an absolute waste when the very first scene of the show is him looking for his sister 
And I honestly forgot that he had a sister until they brought it back up in the middle in one scene. I was like, oh, yeah, that was a thing. But but just to to go back and put the capstone on it, I agree with Danielle 100 percent. We are in the same boat that the biggest flaw with this show is you cannot have a white man tell the story of an indigenous character and then surround him with all of these wonderful white people who get to be the heroes without any, where is their nuance? Where is Marva's nuance? Where is Nemec's? But Cassian gets nuance, you know, like. And they make, if, they make Cassian seem like the only one who needs to change the only one with issues. And that really sat wrong with me. Um, because you see this a lot with, you know, I'm, I'm biracial, so I, and I don't consider myself a person of color, um, because I'm so <laughs> white to everyone who looks at me. Um, but you see this narrative used on brown kids all the time. They have, yeah. they have issues, they have issues at home. They grew up, uh, you know, in wrong ways or in bad ways and they need to fix themselves. They need to find something. And here's this white person who's going to come and save the day. You have all those movies about the white teacher at the, at the lower income schools. And yep. like, this is, that's what it reminded me of. And, um, and so Cassian's the one with problems. Cassian's the one who has to find his way. Marva stole him mm-hmm. and she doesn't need to find her way. She gets a pass. She gets a free pass for that. Luthen has done all of these problems, but he's still a hero at the end of the day. He gets a pass for that. And right. it's just the, the fact that this was a, a story that was really marketed on the idea that it's led by a Mexican man. And all of the heroes were white people. Mm-hmm. All of the heroes, Luthen, Marva, Vale, Mon Mothma, they were all these characters that we kept going to, and they got so much more of a story than yeah. the characters of color. And not to mention, def- oh yeah, go ahead. I was yeah, I was definitely disappointed um, by by um, Val, Val. I loved Val's story, but her getting so much more attention than Cinta did, and also that in that raid, um, Nemec dies, and we have this moment of trying to save him. The other two people who die are the two black members of the team, and they both like. And I kind of like that they have unceremonious deaths, but it also looks really bad. Mm-hmm. And just kind of drawing back, I, I'm so grateful you two are breaking this up. And this is kind of why I wanted both of you on the same episode, because I've heard you both talking about this. I wanted to have this all in conversation, especially because I realized this is an issue that I have an intellectual understanding of, but I don't have the connection to that you're, you both are talking about. And I think that's kind of the point. And I'll say I have egg on my face here because I very much was one of those who was saying – Look, this show understands nuance of everything. I can't imagine they wouldn't get the nuance of Marva because – and I was wrong there. And I I am still hopeful that they will bring it up later. Mm-hmm. But I think that – I, I think it's very – if like I think if they brought it up in episode 10 or 11, I would have been like, okay, cool. You were setting the ground for that. I forgive you for not doing it yet, although it's not really my place to be the one forgiving it. But but I think certainly by now, I think we're at a point where it's like you you can't have put this out there and then wait two years to address yeah. it. Um, especially because I think a lot of the online discourse that I've seen here has been fairly binary, where it's been either Marvel was wrong to do that, she's bad, she's terrible, or people then saying, no, what Marvel did was clearly good, she rescued him, so there's nothing wrong with it. And 
I'm curious to hear both your ta- your takes on this. Because I think again, here's a place where there's a lot more nuance, which is at least the way I understood it. As someone who, like I said, has not lived this experience, but through both my cultural understandings and like, um, as someone who is, is half Jewish and, and some of the kind of uh, interracial stuff that brings up, or intercultural, but even more importantly, as someone who's had a lot of family and friends who've been looking into foster care as white people, in those systems, when they're doing it right, which seems to be often, there's so much attention paid to, okay, if you're going to do this, it can be a good act. You can be a loving family, but you need to really study all the ways in which you have to decolonize your thinking. You have to really, and it's everything from learning how to comb the hair of someone who might have hair differently to yours to just who are the pictures of, of famous people you have up in your houses, all of that. Mm-hmm. And so I think of that level of education as being something we're kind of at a point where would be expected. And that's why, but of course, that's a tiny minority. And that's why it's so shocking that it didn't come. But but anyway, to, get, to, to pull it back to what actually happened in the story, he, here's my understanding. I want to tell you, see if, if this fits what you both are thinking, is that what the story showed us was that from Marva's perspective, the kids on this planet were somewhat in danger. And here's this one kid who she's encountered, and she goes into white savior mode of, I can save this kid, I I should do that, and he doesn't understand yet, we can't communicate, but he'll understand in time, so I'm going to drug him and take him away. And we also understand enough to know that the idea that he could be in danger is legitimate. And that we don't know more about what's happening, but there was some, like, so to me, it's not necessarily quite simply like, oh, he would have been just happy and fine. It's that she makes the decision with no input from him. She makes no effort to try to communicate with the other people and, and maybe rescue them if she thinks they're in danger or at least. And then there's absolutely no, there's a, I rescued you. So there's none of that attempt to have the cultural competency of go back there and learn or, yes, you should help find your sister. Let me help you. It's I want you to be raised now in my culture, totally cut off from yours. So is that is that kind of similar how you see it or where where do you fall in terms of like what it is specifically that Marva does wrong and and how black or white or, or nuanced that the morality of that is? I think that it's it's incredibly nuanced because I, anytime you talk about this on TikTok, Twitter, you always get replies, comments of people saying, oh, so she should have just left him there to die. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, well, no one, literally no one is saying that. No one is saying we want, obviously we don't want Cassian to be left there to die. There's, for me, and I'm going to try and make this quick so that AJ can talk. Um, For me, there's two things that are happening here. One, you have the character who... Uh, like you said, knows that there is likely immediate danger to this area, to this ship. Mm -hmm. And so this child that she sees is in immediate danger. So she assumes. And she doesn't want to leave him to die because she would feel guilty about that. And she, so she chooses to take him. And Clem tells her, you can't take him. He has people here. She says, well, we don't have a choice because he's going to die. So in my mind, her worry wasn't about anyone else on the planet. It was this immediate vicinity, and it was this child that she could see. Nothing she couldn't see, she wasn't thinking about, or she was thinking about. Um, And and so that is the immediate issue. It was like you said, she goes into savior mode and doesn't think about the implications that this could have. What I was hoping was that they would have more flashbacks throughout the series 
and they would show a moment where she's finally able to communicate with Casa and asks him if she wants him to bring him back. And Mm -hmm. they go back and maybe they see that his community has been destroyed. And so he can't stay there by himself. He chooses then to go with Marva and Clem. That would have been good for me. Like that would have been good enough for me. I would have been able to accept Marva after that. Um, because that is him making a choice at this point. And, um, like I would have been okay with that, but it didn't happen. And I think that that was very unfortunate and they missed an opportunity to include, it would have been take, it wouldn't have taken that much time. (laughs) Like really it would have taken maybe like five to 10 minutes to tell that story. Um, and the second thing that's happening here is, um, like we, AJ and I've talked about a white man is writing this. He doesn't have the experience, the personal connection to really see what is being implied by not furthering this story in this season. Because what we're seeing with people having these comments and these replies of, so she should have just left him there to die. Oh, so like she didn't, she shouldn't have saved him is a direct reflection of what Tony Gilroy did not tell on that show. And that is a huge problem. So you have in-character problems or in-universe problems and our real-world problems that are happening simultaneously as a result of more writers of color not being <laughs> in the writing room, uh, not being yeah. creating in, or not creating these shows. And that's not just an Andor problem. That is a Star Wars problem in general. Mm-hmm. Writ large. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I think that's, like to me, I mean, I don't want to simplify nuance, but it seems like, as as opposed to that binary of either she should have left him and she's terrible, or he was going to die and she had to rescue him, there's a middle ground there of maybe she should have rescued him, although maybe also she should have gained more information, but that she should have also been aware of the consequences mm-hmm. of taking him away from that, and we should have seen more of how both of them were dealing with those consequences. Yeah, exactly. And definitely, I agree with everything. And one thing that I kind of want to use is we all tend to look at the world and and we analyze our media through our specific lens. Um, And mine is often through my particular flavor of biraciality, where I was raised in steeped in one culture and perceived in another and I'm always perceived in another. And that is a layer that Andor misses completely because this story could very much be like that with Cassian having been born and raised in one culture and then being perceived and raised like after that in another. And like, like Danielle said, there's there, like you both said, there's no recognition of that change there's no recognition of his canary life versus his post canary life those you could take out the canary stuff entirely and this show would not lose anything and that's the shame because you you have two ways to go with it like with marva in general she did the right thing for the right reasons and it was still the wrong thing which i think that i think is important for white people to understand that you can do the right thing for the right reasons and it's still wrong and there's no acknowledgement of that like 
she has two options when it comes to raising Cassian. She can try to incorporate his real, uh, his background, his culture, or she can ignore it. And those are going to have an impact on Cassian one way or another. And in this, we see that she chose to ignore it. And that has no impact on Cassian whatsoever. Like you could have had a moment as much as I hate it, where when, when she dies and Brasso gives her, you know, gives this heartfelt final words to Cassian. And maybe that, like, I feel like given what we have, that would have been a moment like, cool, but that's not my mom. Like, yeah, like she's, she was, she was fine. She did, you know, she raised me, but that's not my mother. Because yeah. she never she never did a job of assimilating him into her life. She just kept him like a trophy of the time she did something really good. And then stopped letting him have that discussion. Didn't let him look for his people, his culture, his sister, anything. And if it were me in that, I feel like I would be a little more antagonistic toward that than Cassian right. was. But instead, Cassian got to be the model minority. Thank yeah. you, white lady, for taking me in and raising <laughs> me. Um, oh, you have these nice, sweet words for me at the end there. Like, good for you. It just, it, it just screams of white saviorism. And like you said, for a show that is all about nuance, it's interesting that this is the part of the conversation where all nuance went out the window. Yeah. Like, I remember, AJ, the conversation we had, and, and you really helped me kind of see how much a lot of the, the, the indigenous connection that I had been missing to some extent, particularly with um, the way they let um, uh, Diego Luna's accent continue to be for the accent for the character, and that's going all the way back to Rogue One. Like, one of the things that really struck me is that at the beginning, we, the audience, weren't allowed to know what the people on Canari were saying to each other. And, and that was really powerful, I thought, because it was, again, that kind of that's the, their, their experience. But the fact that by the end, because as you said, like when, when that call kind of like, well, you're not my mom. We have no idea who his mother was, though. No. We never actually got to learn what happened to all the adults in Canari, including mm -hmm. presumably his parents. I mean, I, I think they're, they, they don't seem like they spawned, you know, spontaneously. <laughs> um, they are human to some extent still. I mean, absolutely. And I have some real problems with the way that the Star Wars universe just has had humans colonize all over the place. And like sometimes there's different races of humans and sometimes there's not. And that's very complicated but yeah i think there's so much problematic there and it, it's funny because like as a child who has had problem problematic relationships with their parents and seeking their acceptance the phrase i love you more than the worst thing you've ever done like made me sob and was so powerful but then yeah later i think about it i'm like but what that sets up is is that Marva is the good parent and Cassian's been the bad child this whole time. And it, it's interesting, um, Danielle, you talked about the one scene that you would have wanted. I was having a similar thought of, which is what, what I want was, because there was definitely some tension between the two of them. And I interpreted that as still some unresolved parts of that. And like, even if it had just been Cassian talking to Brasso, Brasso, is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay, even had just been Cassian talking to Brasso, which the fan fictions that that would launch, <laughs> but um, just and 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 him saying like, yeah, like I'm coming to terms with Marva's death is hard for me because she was my mother, but she wasn't, and like, yeah, there was that time. Ten, you remember that time ten years ago when I didn't speak to her for a year because 
you know, I was coming to turn like some recognition that there had been some conflict between the two of them. And even if you tell us that it had been resolved, acknowledge that, acknowledge that it had been painful and that Marva had had to do some work that wasn't just, oh, you ungrateful kid. Why aren't you happy with the, you know, we rescued you? Because I think that's, I think the other part where I really came to know this issue was when I was very involved in the uh, Unitarian Universalist movement for a while. There was, at the time I was involved, a very big movement of children who'd been adopted because like a lot of kind of liberal progressive groups in the 60s and 70s at that point white people thought one of the best things they could do was adopt kids from quote unquote third world areas and you had all these kids who were uh you know of african or latin american or or asian descent being like yeah our white parents raised us and they meant well but they did some really horrible things and there was a lot of anger that was being processed and discussed and like i just i just needed that i needed some semblance of that from cassian um uh, or not not that i want to but from the show to acknowledge that and i think it was just really i think we're all in different ways we're all just really disappointed that that didn't happen yeah i really liked aj you saying that um it felt inauthentic the way he acted mm-hmm. with Marva, his relationship with Marva, because Marva's not even related to him by blood, and he should have that. He should have that anger still, and we know this because, or I don't, I, I know this. I don't want to speak for you. <laughs> I know this because I oftentimes feel that anger towards someone I am related to by blood, someone that I do come from, and. Um, if I feel that as a biracial person raised by one white parent and another parent who is a person of color, then someone who comes from a completely different family and is surrounded by people who understand him and know him and have raised him would undoubtedly have that anger (laughs) when they're taken by a stranger. And so that you're absolutely right. It felt inauthentic. It felt how is this possible? Cassian waking up on the ship and not immediately freaking out? That is inauthentic. Mm-hmm. And I felt like they they kept it like that to have a good parallel, to have a nice little parallel here. And that's when it's like clearly what Tony Gilroy wanted was to tell this cute, beautiful story and doesn't matter who gets hurt in the, in the yeah. meantime. Yeah. And like, like, I just want to bring up again the Canary language thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of people praised the idea that, you know, oh, they were allowed to have their own language and, you know, we didn't have to know what they were saying. No, the problem is not having subtitles or anything with their language others them to the audience. Mm. It makes it to where we can't connect with them, really, because we have no idea what they're saying. We have to try to connect emotionally, but it others them. And it's like a great example of this in other media was the movie Prey, the Predator film. Not to spoil anything, originally they wanted to put that movie entirely in Navajo, and then um, there's a scene, but there's a scene with French trappers. And they decided um, in that moment, the, the trappers speak French French and they don't 
speak any English and there are no subtitles. They just speak French. And what they realized was if she speaks Navajo the whole movie, you're not going to understand her. Then you're going to meet the French people. You're not going to understand them. They were like, instead, in order to endear her to the audience, she's going to speak some and then transition over to English. And then they're going to be the others in this situation because you're not going to understand what they're saying as the average audience member. That is what language does when you use not English in an English focused program is by taking away the words, you're taking away their voice. You're taking away what the audience can truly understand from them. And you're making them, ooh, the other, they're this mystery indigenous tribe. And like you said, there's just, I hate going back and realizing that you could take all of the Canary stuff out of this show. It has no impact on anything. And that is so disappointing because we were all so excited to see it in those first episodes. And then. Yeah, yeah. it makes me wish that they hadn't touched Cassian's backstory <laughs> because I would have well, rather not had it and not be disappointed like this mm-hmm. than to, you know, just, yeah, he grew up on a separatist world. And he threw rocks at clones and he, you know, like I would have rather had that than, than this, honestly. And that sucks because I was looking forward to it. Well, especially because, and I, I, I still have some hope that they're going to address some of this in, in year two, although again, I don't think it matters. Uh, I mean, it matters, but it's, it's not going to be enough. But even if they did, like, one of the for me, one of the things I most wanted to see during the Endor show was how the rebellion comes together, mm-hmm. and we get the first part of the story, but we know that like season two is supposed to cover four years in total. Like the basically, it's going to be the same timeline as Rebels, mm-hmm. and I know there's a part of me that's going to get so wrapped up in like, okay, what's Fulcrum saying to this group, and what's happening? Oh, okay, no, we've got to go back to Kanari now. You know, like the time when like that it. it and maybe we won't get it at all, and that's going to be its own kind of bad. Or maybe we'll get it, and it'll feel like a distraction, and that'll be its own kind of bad. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask one other thing, because one thing that kind of stands out to me as another one of those, like, you know, the dog that doesn't bark and, and makes me think about how Gilroy may have just not thought of this as a white person. To me, one of the other – one of the most confusing aspects of this whole world is to what extent does race matter? Mm-hmm. You know, because to some extent, we've kind of been taught that in Star Wars, like – Race is humans versus all other races, you know, and that like among humans, black, white, Asian doesn't really matter very much. But and and AJ, you did such a great analysis of this that that accent indigenous would still matter. Still, though, Clem is the one who is saying, hey, wait a minute, Marva, maybe this isn't a good idea. Clem is black. Mm -hmm. And we never see and I. Marva is clearly the mother, but I think they referenced to Clem being his father. Mm-hmm. I think certainly like the both of them were raising him. And I feel like there's a whole other side of the story to explore of what would Clem have thought of how Marva is raising him? What influence would she have had? And with the fact that to us, the audience, Clem and Marva come at this from very different racial perspectives in a way. And like not to say like, like black and Latina are by no means like equivalent, 
Um, but still, he's not white, but in the universe, he kind of is. Like, it, or at least he's human. It's it just, there's so many more layers there that I, even as I was thinking about it, realizing, like, never seeing Clem as a father. It's just he got hung and everyone is sad about it. It's just this whole set of things that, that Gilroy didn't explore. That is one of my other issues, and I've talked about it with my other Latina friends, um, is that you're right, Star Wars before this has been, it's been the human race against, you know, the aliens. And Mm -hmm. even if things were, you know, specific aliens were wrongly, like, racialized, like, based off of, you know, Asian caricatures, based off of, you know, various caricatures of other uh, non-white races. And that's its own issue. But in universe, it has always been, you know, the human race mm-hmm. versus aliens. And so when you bring in this, this more nuanced take to it, that it might, that skin color might matter, that where you're from might matter, that accents might matter. Mm-hmm. You've got to take some time <laughs> to unpack that. You've got to take some time to show how that looks across the galaxy, how, what the implications of that mean in this universe. Right. And they did not do that. And mm-hmm. that was a big issue for me. Like, that is, that's like I said, not treating it with care and yeah. using it as a trope, using these very real, this very real trauma, various traumas, uh, these wounds to mm-hmm. tell, to, you know, just have fun with, <laughs> to, to, to tell yeah. a story, to stick to a theme that you wanted to pull a fast one on specific groups of people and then not offering anything in return. Like you, right. you open this wound in communities of people. You've got to give some salve to it. Like you've got to give something to start to try to heal it. And I feel like people from these communities, from marginalized communities, understand that and know that you can't use, like you can't show a black man being hanged. And not right. offer something in return for that. You can't show an indigenous child being taken from his home and his family and not offer some sort of healing process for that. And that to me is just like the biggest indicator of, you know, it being written by white people because mm-hmm. or people who aren't from these communities because they think they can just use what they want and not offer anything in return. And yeah. that is exactly this. You've got to show it. You've got to unpack it. And they didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you're right. Like, why does Marva get to go on and die this heroic hero's death, this F the Empire, you know, rallying speech, whereas Clem literally just gets hanged in, like, a three-second flashback? Like, right. you, you're absolutely right that there's no, like... I forgot that I almost forgot that Clem existed at points because again, it's all about Marva. It's all about the, the white mom, like, which is, which is a thing in and of itself. And uh, fantasy as a genre has a problem with this, the way that it tackles race in general, um, Mm -hmm. because always throughout fantasy, since Tolkien did it himself as well, all of your fantasy races take from and embody different traits from different cultures and humans are always default white. Yeah. They are always default white Europeans and there's never any nuance. So then when you try to add nuance, like have you ever noticed you play like Skyrim, if you're a video game person, the black people are all from a different part of the world. 
They're all red guards. Like, that's how fantasy does it. Like, humans are default white, and then we're like, and then there's these other ones from this other place. And when you try to add nuance to that, and you go, oh, we'll have Cassian, and he'll have an accent, and he'll be exotic, and then nothing comes of it again. Like, there's never a moment where people have trouble understanding the way Cassian speaks in the universe where people say, where are you from? And he's like, Ferrix. And they're like, really? You don't, you don't sound like you're from Ferrix. You know, like if it's going to be a thing, the only time it really seems or feels like it matters is when he gets pulled over on the, the beach. I, I that's, that- that's the only time it matters is when we can use it to play into that trope. Yep. And the we- alley scene uh, in the first episode. Yeah. Oh, can he swim? Can you even swim? swim. That was another one of those things where it was like, that hurts. (laughs) Like, because we've, we've heard that, like maybe, you know, either directed to us, directed to our parents, directed to our family members or just other people in our community. And that hurts. And there was nothing else ever done about that. And I mean, I mean, that was the that was the most satisfying racial moment in that show, though, was when those guys say that. And then he just caps both of them like deservedly. So I was like, I'll give you a slide on that one, Tony Gilroy. Thank you. Thank you for that. moment. (laughs) I'll let you have that one. Um, Because I think you're right. Because to me, it definitely felt like it was setting those things up. You know, like the, the can you swim? I felt like it was Gilroy's way of saying, like, look, this person that deals with the same things that, you know, across the, the Rio Grande, uh, you know, immigrants deal with here in our own world. And, and same, the kind of like arrested while being a person of color. Mm-hmm. That, that seemed very clear, especially because especially like, I don't know if you got this. Maybe it's just because I've watched too much Burn Notice and, other, <laughs> Burn Notice and shows like it. The place he went to felt very much like Space Miami. Like oh, yeah. and, and to me, that whole thing of like you want like that's a story I've definitely heard of like someone being like, oh, I'm actually here as a tourist, but you're assumed to be part of like you know the the criminal underculture of the city, the the idiot ideas that the cops build up, that kind of thing. But you're right, yeah. If there's no payoff to it, then it does feel like it's just trading in tropes. Yeah. Um, I'd be very curious to hear more of what Diego Luna thinks about all this because I know like these are issues that are very important to him. I have to wonder if maybe he didn't know like what was being caught or what was, since that's not something actors are a part of at all. So um, I, I wonder this too, and I've like this probably has nothing to do with it, but I found it very interesting that there have been multiple interviews with Tony Gilroy, with um, the actors who play Cyril and Dedra, and then Genevieve, who plays um, Mon Mothma. There have been lots of interviews with them, but there haven't really been any interviews since the show aired with Diego Luna. And um, I, I want to know, like, I want to know what his thoughts are. I want to know if, um, you know, I don't, I don't want him to be blamed is my big thing because I don't like yeah. people putting extra weight on the, the Latino actor, the one who was supposed to carry the mm-hmm. show and he did. But um, like it's at the end of the day, he might've had input, but he's not the creator of the show. Tony Gilroy is. Tony Gilroy is the one who's responsible for all of this. And, um, and so I don't want, I think there's a tendency to be like, oh, we were looking forward to it. Diego was good. <laughs> this was to be our, our like yeah. guiding light in this. And it's, I think, natural to feel a little bit like let down, but it's mm-hmm. not on him like at all. He did yeah. a fantastic mm-hmm. job. Um, but one thing I wanted to touch on just really quickly is that plays into all of this is the fact that we never got Casa's sister, Carrie. We never got mm-hmm. her name verbally 
in the show. It was only oh, yeah. in the credits and on oh. the Star Wars website. Similarly, <laughs> Clem's name was not said verbally until um, Cassian chose that name as his uh, code name or his pseudonym to go by uh, on Aldani. They didn't say his name verbally before that. And so there were a lot of people, a lot of my friends, confused. They were like, what is, like, why is everyone freaking out that Cassian chose the name Clem? Who is that? Oh. And because it was in the like, credits. Oh. It was in the credits. But they did not oh, say his see. name verbally. It, I had the, the same credits, question. I think it's in the subtitles. Yeah. That, I knew it was Clem because I think he speaks and he's subtitled. Yeah. But you're right. Yeah, I asked. No, no, no. I asked that exact question when I was on this podcast. Um, I asked, like, why did he pick the name Clem? And they were like, that's his dad's name. I was like, oh, like, because I didn't notice it either. Because you're right. It's those. And it's just it's I don't even think it's intentional. No. Like, I want to give Tony Gilroy a lot of credit. I don't think it's intentional. But it's I like it shows you that. Like, of course, these are the characters that didn't get names. These are the things that don't get brought up. Like, I could, we could have this exact level of con, like, discussion about how wonderfully Dedra is portrayed. How Dedra is a victim for seven episodes of this fascist regime, but you see how much like white women specifically as a group will use their proximity to whiteness to victimize other people of color and other women. Her arc is fantastic. It has all of the nuance and it's so interesting that Dedra gets all of this like wonderful story told and we leave all of this other stuff conveniently on the floor yeah. it's just carelessness danielle i have to say you were right i was wrong uh you utterly called cyril's direction he was going <laughs> so i wanted to give credit for that because yeah like dedra and cyril are two of my favorite characters but uh there's more i would say there but danielle i'll cut you off go ahead oh i was just gonna say it was it's just carelessness like you said I don't, it wasn't yeah. intentional i don't think that any of this was intentional Um, But that doesn't mean that its impact is any less. And I think we understand that very well. And that's that's the whole thing is that, like, I'm not saying that Tony Gilroy is the devil. I'm not saying saying that Marvel's the devil. (laughs) I'll show you the devil. (laughs) Um, But it's it's these things like this carelessness, um, Mm -hmm. you know, impact is always greater than intent. I think. And this carelessness is what led to a lot of these gaps. It's what led to a lot of, um, you know, just, you know, Clem and Carrie not getting named immediately and then just forgetting. Like, how do you forget that? I think that's a really big thing to forget in editing. (laughs) Like, well, why don't, why don't we pick that up? Um, And just that um, it's not having the voices and the people that you need to have in the creator's room, in the writer's room, in the directing. Mm-hmm. And I just think that that is really yeah. important and this speaks to it. I think probably Andor is the biggest example of that because it's so intentional, because it's so good, because it's so like grounded in reality that when it misses the mark like that, it's going to be a huge yeah. thing. And it should be because you create a show with this much intention you better hit every mark or people are going to call you out rightfully so. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and and even like one thing I don't see people discussing is Luthen and the problems that Luthen brings because Luthen is like praised by a lot of people as this character. Mm. Have you noticed that the people that he's willing to throw under the bus all seem to have something in common? Like yep. he won't reach out about Bix. He won't really try to reach out to Bix, but Vel boy howdy if he's not trying to get on the phone to talk to Vel and make sure she's okay like how quickly he was to throw my boy tubes under the bus right in front of Saw heck like like he's using Saw he uses Cassian like and but he's given that wonderful speech about all the things that he sacrifices which is really cute when you look at how many people he's willing to throw under the bus the, the real people and specifically Cassian and saw tubes cinta mm-hmm. like bix all of these specific kinds of people that he's willing to throw under the bus yeah to me like i i do love luthan's speech but i think mm-hmm. it's a villain speech and i think that's the whole point like to me he is and i think this was very intentional he's that guy who was saying we need to let trump win again so that people get even more mad and want to overthrow like he's literally an accelerationist <laughs> And just like most of those people who are calling for Trump to win, he's not going to get hurt. His art gallery is not what's going to suffer. It is the people on Aldani and on Ferrex and all these places. And because, yeah, I, I totally agree with you, uh, AJ. Like, I, I think Luthen's a phenomenally written character. Oh, yeah. But I think the people who see him just as a pure hero, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, like he, Krieger, like, wants to help. And he's and like. You know, there's the whole Coventry debate, which, by the way, is factually untrue, but it it makes for an interesting kind of trolley problem thing. But to me, that's the whole problem is that for Luthen, it's this intellectual exercise of sacrificing other people's lives like their pieces on the board. And it's always the people who love him most are also, I find, the ones who don't like Saw. (laughs) And I'm like, Saw and Luthen are two sides of the same coin. I like saw better. <laughs> well, yeah. And here, so here's the thing. I, I want to kind of tie it back to something you were saying, AJ, and, and you all can tell me this theory is completely ridiculous. I feel like in a lot of ways, Nemec is the self-insert character for Tony mm. Gilroy and has the exact same flaw. Because, like, I think one of the things that I loved so much about this show, as I mentioned at the beginning, is I do think it's a master class in the different approaches people can have to revolution. And, like... I do think at least Tony Gilroy, I don't think Tony Gilroy thinks Luthen is a hero. I think he thinks that, like, that may be necessary, but it's horrific and maybe it shouldn't be necessary. Same with, like, holding the gun to the kid's head. And one of our most frequent guests was Professor Matthew Capel, who ha- has a real background in some of the stuff. We were talking about how a lot of this, um, the aspects of, like, the different parts of revolution really mirror, like, the, the Russian revolution that happened uh, when the communists took over, down to, like, Stalin became popular by robbing banks for um, to raise money, just like they're doing. And I remember I made an offhand comment on that, and then, Professor, uh, and then Matthew Capel pointed out, like, oh, yeah, actually, Tony Gilroy has, like, deeply studied the Russian revolution, and... What it felt to me was he wanted to write this story, and this to me feels very much white leftist, 
and, and I, I, it's something I'm very aware of because I think I'm all the time trying to make sure I'm not this myself. I'm sure I have been at times. It felt like he wanted to tell a story about leftism and revolution and all the different sides of it and to, and to do it in a very nuanced way that said, I'm not saying Mothma's right. I'm not saying Luthen is right. I'm not saying Saul's right. I'm asking you, the audience, to look at it and to think about it which I think is a very great thing to do with Star Wars. But then he said, well, but I'm a leftist and I'm white, so I should throw in some characters of color and some indigenous stories to make it more so that I'm not just a white leftist telling a white people story. And that to me is exactly what you were saying about Nemec. You know, it's that he, it, mm-hmm. it becomes just tokenizing in, and, and subserting it to, subver, subsuming it into the leftist story he wants to tell instead of making it actually about the people of color, which means bringing people of color's voices into the room to tell those stories. And in so doing, he's now every problematic white leftist on the internet, yep. which is what Nemec is a standpoint for. Yeah, Nemec is, Nemec and Marva are the heroes of this story as written. They are the two most heroic characters in this story. And despite any flaws that they might have, they're the only characters without flaws. Like, as written. Like, I'm sorry, I do not buy the way the story goes that Nemec would just die fighting alongside his buddies. Like he's written as this, like, like you said, like this stand in for these armchair activists who can write right. these wonderful manifestos about how the system is corrupt. But like you put a gun in their hand, they're going to freeze. They've never been in this situation before. And that's a more honest character and a character I could get behind. I could understand that yeah. character and he's more nuanced, has more to tell. And then having Cassian take that manifesto and complete that story gives Cassian the agency mm. makes Cassian the hero he's not going to be the armchair activist that Nemec was he's going to be the hero who fulfills that manifesto and they robbed that from him to give Nemec his moment in the sun mm. and Marva is the same way like I said about Marva could have been you know that it's great that she's the mother to all of Ferrix and that she's the, the mother of this rebellion here, but she's not my mom. Like, yeah. those are things... Those two characters lack any sort of nuance because those are your self-insert characters. Those are Tony Gilroy going, this is the right thing to do. These are the right people. And that's what makes them so frustrating for me. And it's hard to have this conversation specifically with white people because they do not, they can't let go of it because those are the characters that they identify with. They don't want to see Nemec as a problem. And, and Tony Gilroy wrote him not to be a problem. He got that wonderful send off. And so we can't have this conversation about it because the text disagrees. Yeah. I am. Um, someone commented on one of my videos with the perfect explanation for my feelings <laughs> about this. Andor started off as Cassian's story and ended as Tony Gilroy's vanity project. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, I think that's fair. And I, I feel bad sometimes. I harp on Tony Gilroy a lot. I do think that he's brilliant. I do think that he's brought amazing things to this franchise. And I think a big thing that helped with that was him not being a super fan. Of him being able to take a, yep. take a step back and see what is the story that needs to be told. 
and not the story that necessarily people are expecting. Um, and I appreciate that for him. I appreciate what he did for Rogue One. Um, but he is not a god <laughs> in yeah. the same way that like mm-hmm. I love Dave Filoni but he when he messes up I call it out when he messes up yeah. like he's not a god either he's done things he shouldn't have done in when it comes to creating things for Star Wars Tony Gilroy is the same he has a brilliant mm-hmm. mind and he is a really good writer but he's not mm-hmm. perfect and these <laughs> these yeah. white men need checks and balances yeah. and so like it, they're brilliant but they need yeah. a balance to their brilliance sorry no no exactly no no yes we do i would agree as a white somewhat man yeah i would totally agree <laughs> and it just i think one of the the biggest frustrations for me in the discourse of andor online mm-hmm. is that people aren't willing to do that <laughs> it's like it's like yeah. i said after the finale I was like, I quote retweeted Luthen's speech and I said, me on here every week is one of the like five people willing to call out <laughs> the wrong choices made in the show <laughs> because it, it genuinely feels sometimes like people just want to talk about the positive aspects, the positive aspects, positive aspects, and that's fine and I get it. And there are some really stupid critiques out there that aren't critiques that are just complaining, but this is criticism. This Wait, is... you mean you're not you're not angry that there were bricks and screws shown? In... <laughs> of course I'm angry. I just don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but and, and that's what sucks about like having you know the stupid complaints, yeah. the Ooh, childish but... complaints. Uh, is that when um, you give real criticism and important criticism that people yeah. need to learn from um, and that you want to have like good faith discussions about, you can't because people don't want to engage with it because they don't want to engage with any criticism or mm-hmm. they lump you in with the people making yeah. bad faith complaints. And what does it tell you that the people who are making those stupid criticisms like what does it tell you about them that they don't see these criticisms yeah. that we have yeah. they only right. like like we can make valid criticisms of this show but when you don't understand those perspectives you fall to bricks and screws you right. know because you're looking for something and it's like this is why i said those brilliant white men need a team around them. They need someone to help them just because, like I said, Nemec is a great character, but I never once looked at that character and saw him as the hero that he ended up getting to be. Right. I, it just didn't sit right with me. And like, there should be someone in the room to have those conversations with just to say, Hey, man, the way you have him right here, you know, if you want it to be that character, maybe give him a little bit of a fighting backstory. He's been fighting. He's been in yeah. a couple of fights. Now I buy it, you know, but like there's no one. It's just an echo chamber of those same voices. And Filoni and Favreau are not above that either. You know, I, I mean, one of both the great moments of the show, but that also really frustrated with me because it took that away from Nemec is we one of the things that I remember thinking about when when you brought all that great critique of Nemec that honestly I hadn't thought of before in the, that same way was, but then we get, um, I, I can't remember his name, but the guy who Cassian winds up shooting Skeen. on the team. Skeen. Mm-hmm. And Skeen, Skeen builds this connection of like, yo, we were in juvie together, which is like, not necessarily a racial thing, but like it's a very clear connection of like, we have had this shared experience of childhood trauma and Nemec had it too. 
And that, for me, gave me some level of, okay, Nevik maybe has a level of street cred. But then once we realize how completely an unreliable narrator scheme is, all that goes out the window because, we, again, we don't actually, now we don't actually know. Was that true about Nemec? Was it not? And again, that's to me Gilroy not realizing why it's important to know. Is, is Nemec just the armchair academic? Does he come from privilege? Does he come from a really rough background? And what, where does he stand on that? Yeah, because we didn't get... That was my thing with Nemec because, I mean, I'm going to admit, I, I have a soft spot for, for my boy Nemec. <laughs> I get it. But primarily because we don't know what his background was. And I think I mentioned that to you, AJ, is the only thing that holds me Mm -hmm. back from that is that we don't know what his experiences are. It's clear that he's never been in war before. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I wanted to know what brought him to this rebel cell, what brought him to sacrifice, you know, his life and commit it to this. And I think it's a real shame that we didn't get to learn that because that would have, you know, it could have opened up potential for him to be not a perfect character, as you said. So maybe that's why. Um, but it's it's just, it's a shame because I think that there was a lot of potential there. Um, and when I think about these episodes, none of them went the way I expected them to. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And some of that was for the best, like a good surprise. And some of it was kind of like, um, oh, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that we just left these strands alone. And on one hand, I get that because it's supposed to mirror real life. And so there are things that you're never going to get answered. We're never going to know more about Nimic's life because Cassian never knew more about Nimic's life. And you know, maybe there are aspects of that. But at what point is that a good reason? And at what point is that an excuse? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The This using it as Cassian. Because I see people say all the time, oh, they didn't show Marva's death because Cassian didn't get to see Marva's death. I'm like, well, there's a lot that went on that Cassian didn't get to see that we got to see. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, like, at what point is it a good reason? At what point is it an excuse? And, yeah. Yeah. And, and I just want to go back also to something you were saying before about how how e- how hard it is to have these discussions and why I'm so glad you are having this discussion with me because of how binary these conversations get. Because I think, like like I said, I made a conscious decision. I didn't want this to be let's talk about all the things we loved and then talk about the problematic yeah. things. Because frankly, anyone who wants to hear either of you talk about how great the show is just needs to check out your TikToks yeah. because you both and all three of us were making content about all the things we did like about this show. And... In some way, I'm. Um, this quote has been given to both Robert McAfee Brown and Abby Hoffman, so I'm not sure who exactly first said it, but the uh, someone was asking, like, why do you hate the United States? And he said, no, I don't hate my country. I'm in a, I love my country. I'm in a lover's quarrel with my country. Mm. You know, and, and uh, Robert McAfee Brown definitely went further on to say, like, I... It is the things that I love most that I hold to the highest standards and that I demand the highest standards of. And I think, to me, like... We've all seen Star Wars hate. We've all seen how ugly and terrible that gets. To me, what we're doing here is the exact opposite of that. It's the, we really appreciate some of the things that Gilroy did. I think this is going to remain one of my favorite shows in a lot of ways. But also having a, I mean, I can't really say what's the piece of Star Wars media I have that that I don't have a complex relationship with, because all of it's somewhat problematic, because all media is mostly problematic. I'm going to continue thinking this is one of the best pieces of Star Wars media ever out there. 
and also remembering all the things that could have gone better if there had been other people in the room, if Gilroy had been listening to, if it hadn't been all the things it was. And I think that's, to me, like, there's been a lot of stuff recently, once again, about how toxic Star Wars fandom can be, and I think that's very true. But I think that I think there is this side of the fandom that doesn't get talked about as much, where we are having these kind of conversations of, yes, we can enjoy so many things, but still hold this problematic. Yeah. In the same way, we can also say Marva, she does give a great speech. Yeah. It's just cheapened yeah. somewhat because of the other stuff. I, yeah, I completely agree because, and that's why it's kind of hard existing online because <laughs> mm-hmm. you say one thing and people take that to mean that you don't think another. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I mm-hmm. can complain about Marva. I will complain about Marva for the rest of my life, probably. But, <laughs> but that doesn't mean I don't love this show. I really do. Like I said, it, it is some of the best thing, stuff that Star Wars has ever produced. And I will fully admit that and fully be very glad yeah. for that because I spent a long time waiting for this show. And even if at the end I felt a bit bitter and a bit disappointed, I am still extremely glad that it was a success, that it is a huge success, that so many people who didn't think they were going to enjoy it actually enjoyed it. And that people who maybe don't like or don't get as much from an, from the animated shows as I do or from the Mandalorian as I do, if they can get something in Andor, that is good. Like that is, I'm so happy for that. It makes me really, really happy. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't have criticisms of it. Like you said. Yeah. And I just think it's a shame that sometimes like I can spend every week talking about how much I love this show. And then the minute I put out criticism, people are like, Oh, you're just complaining about it. Star Wars fans keep uh. complaining about Star Wars. And I'm like, go check my social media. Yeah. I've said <laughs> good thing after good thing after good thing. I literally said that episode 10 is the best written episode of television I have ever seen in my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Even though I need to know what happens to Keenan. Oh, yeah. oh that probably. that broke me. Like in a way that nothing in Star Wars has ever broken me. I wail. That that I can't swim. Like, oh goodness. And that's that's the thing, like you both said. Like, I can acknowledge that Tony Gil I can acknowledge that I have problems with decisions Tony Gilroy made in this show. And also say in the same breath that he is the best writer that Star Wars has ever had, in my opinion. Well, he didn't write that episode. Oh, okay. You're Sorry. right. Well, no, 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 no. Hate, I mean, no as, I mean, I mean, as a showrunner, like, yeah. like to to be more specific, Show I runner. think like his brand of showrunning, his brand of storytelling, for the most part, like with the exception of those things that we drop, I right. still think he has like pound for pound the best mind for Star Wars since George Lucas, and a lot of that has to do with he is existing in the space that star wars most is like the space that george lucas originally created Mm -hmm. and i think that i can say both both of those things can be mutually true like i said you could do the right thing for the right reason still make a mistake Mm -hmm. like um i think it's captain picard says something like that to bring it over to star trek um like it's impossible to commit no miss no flaws and do everything right to lose yeah like and i think that's what a lot of this stuff comes down to but like i think this show is brilliant i think there's a lot of fantastic stuff that star wars hasn't ever even really broached you know all the stuff with mon mothma with luthan these are things that we've only ever like been hinted at in live action media 
Um, and it, it just, I don't want these dis, these criticisms to take away from that completely. I always tell people I am most critical of the things I enjoy the most. Yeah. You know, if I really love something, that's when I'm going to engage to be more critical. When I want something like I always tell people, I'm like, I don't really love Attack of the Clones, so I don't really talk about it. It's just something I'm like, it exists. I'll talk about the things I like. That's one I only really talk about the things I like. I don't talk about the criticisms because it's not something that I want to think about. But something like this, I love it so much that I want to discuss these criticisms. I want to talk about that because I can talk until I'm blue in the face about how great it was, but that's not a conversation worth having. Whereas like attack of the clones, the conversation worth having is the things that I do enjoy because those are the things that I couldn't spend days and days ranting about. And I, I, I will say you're a better person than I because I'm contractually obligated to point out that I hate sand is a terrible line of dialogue, but <laughs> can on. I, can I, can I say it real quick? Go for it. I I will defend that line because people forget the second part of that. Yeah. He says to her, I don't like sand. It's coarse. It's rough. It's irritating. And it gets everywhere. Not like here. Here, everything's soft and smooth. That's the part of the line that, yeah. ma that makes Padme fall for him. That's the part people forget about. It's like, if you just take the first part, yeah, it is bad. But, like, the second part of that line is what makes it work. Also, my tiny little criticism of that scene, that she should have, instead of a kiss, she should have kind of giggled, and he should have said, like, are you making fun of me? No, I'm much too frightened to make fun of a Jedi, or, you know, to tease a Jedi. <laughs> so that it's a callback later when they're in the fields. No, I'm much too frightened to tease a senator. Like, oh, little, little <laughs> like things that, that could have worked better. But... I but I defend that line only for the back half that no one ever mentions. <laughs> well, see, we'll get you on to discuss that episode then at some point. You've got more to say about it. You can. Son I, of a like I said, gun, I I'm did this to myself. I'm just contractually obligated to point out my hate of that line. But anyway, Danielle, bring us back to something serious, please. <laughs> oh, um, I think I was, I was going to say that, AJ, you talked about how you don't talk a lot about Attack of the Clones because it would just be what you do like or... Um, you don't really like that that film. And I think that that is such an important point because when you complain or criticize things about something that you didn't like, it comes off more as complaining, right? It comes off more as like, what's the reason for me criticizing this? Because it's just going to come off as me just being like, oh, these are all the reasons I hated it. And right. like, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Like I, I, some people maybe like to do that. I don't like to do that because I don't really like... I don't like bashing something just to bash it, you know? And yeah. that's why I also feel this way about Andor is, or the opposite way about Andor is that I really love it and I see its potential and I see what it reached with so many of its characters and what it reached with so many of its storylines. And I feel contractually obligated to say, <laughs> here's where it didn't reach that point. And we yeah. see that it had the capability to reach that point. So why didn't it? And like, those are the questions I have. Those are the questions that I want Tony Gilroy to answer that I want to yeah. see in interviews. And I'll, I'll never see in interviews, but, um, and, and I feel obligated to bring it up because and I don't want people to think that that's all I think about when I think about the show. 
Um, but I feel obligated to bring it up because other people aren't. And because mm-hmm. everyone's yeah. talking, like, you know, praising it as being the best thing, which I agree to some extent. And, you know, saying all these nice, awesome, positive things about it. And I'm over here like, well, what about this thing? Because it did not completely hit the mark. Like you, mm-hmm. like some people are mm-hmm. saying, it did not completely, or it didn't perfectly uh, nuance its characters. <clears throat> it didn't, um, it wasn't flawless. That's one thing I hate yeah. seeing about it is I'll see people say this was a flawless series. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. There are very real criticisms here. And I think that that needs to be discussed. It needs to be promoted because otherwise no one's going to learn. Otherwise, the same mistakes that were made this season are going to be made next season. And I want to say that I do think there's a strong possibility that his sister will be brought up again in season two. Mm, I do think that, 100%. Um, But that doesn't mean that the storyline was told well in season one. And that's Mm, my main issue. And I think that that's where a lot of people kind of get confused a bit about this argument and bring up, it'll, it has to happen in season two, and that's fine. I do believe it will happen in season two, but that doesn't change the fact. Like, my discussion now is about season one. And yeah. nothing that happens in season two right now is going to change how I feel about the way the story was told in season one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's all such a great way of putting it. And I, I think for me, I come from a, a similar perspective, but a little bit different because it's also for me about... Not only that I don't want to talk about the stuff that I didn't like, but I don't want to talk about the stuff that that doesn't raise questions, you know? Um, I recently did a podcast on Black Adam, which I didn't think I was going to find a way to podcast about because my podcast guest, uh, who's amazing uh, knowledge about uh, DC Comics and Marvel Comics, Jessica Plummer, you can find her writing on Book Riot, you know, she pointed out that this movie probably in incredibly unintentionally raised some interesting questions about internationalism and colonialism, you know, specifically about like American superheroes coming to a Middle Eastern nation to say, your superhero can't do it the way we, we, we you want to do it. We should do it our way. And like, so we had an interesting 15 minute conversation about that movie. And then, like, we found, like, I think it was still a good podcast, but, like, it's shorter than it often is, and there wasn't much else to talk about because the movie wasn't trying to raise questions. And Mm -hmm. back when I, I, as I've said before, I used to be a pastor, very progressive one, and uh, the, the... preaching course I took, the pastor loved the, the, the professor, who was also a pastor, one of the things that he said frequently was, you know, a good sermon should raise questions, it shouldn't just give answers. And that a part of that was that the best kind of sermon is one where you invite the people listening to question so many things, including the way you raise the questions. Mm. And that if people then come back and say, yes, I liked the questions, but here's something you got wrong when raising the questions, like that's good. Mm. You know, because A, you can learn from that, yeah. but also it means you've created that space where people can question everything. Yeah. And again, I don't think that excuses Gilroy, but I think it, I don't think we could have this conversation if the show wasn't that good. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. not only that it was good, but that it was, it was all about asking you, you know, are the rebels always pure and good and right if they're holding a gun to a kid's head? And like Paul, you know, Paul made a good argument of like, yeah, it's just what you have to do. It's fine. They didn't shoot the kids, so who cares? Yeah. Um, Did they? Well, <laughs> we that don't kid's know. Gonna, <laughs> if you want to talk about go to PTSD, go directly to PTSD. It's being a kid with someone holding a gun to your head, and I mean, 
all of that is there. <laughs> There's damage done. But yeah, it's to me, it's just, it's just such a good way of raising these questions. Um, I've had you on for a while. We can continue this conversation for hours, but um, I have a spouse I need to feed and, <laughs> and other things like that happening. Uh, so let me just close with this. And then I'll give each of you a chance to close with something. And there's kind of half a comment, half a question. One of the things that I think shapes this whole discussion for me, and this is just kind of the meta of conversations, is that while Andor was coming out, we had another very big budget, uh, very high high um, you know profile media project, Black Panther Wakanda Forever come out, where almost all the people in the creative room are people of color. And where they wound up telling a story that had, and I don't, I don't give spoilers away, but I think it's well known that like a culture that has its roots in uh, Mexican and indigenous, particularly Mayan cultures is very well featured. And they very intentionally brought people with expertise in those cultures and, and personal experience in those cultures, not just like outside experts, into the writing room to, to, to show that. And I feel like, for me at least, I think I am, and I don't think this is bad or unfair, I am more critical of this, or at least more aware of it, because of having seen Black Panther, because of, and, and knowing more about how much Ryan Coogler, who's himself a person of color, but not Mexican, not indigenous, and he has been very on the record of saying, I couldn't tell their stories without them in the room. Yeah. And I feel mm-hmm. like for me, there's a big effect that has had on how Andor is viewed for me, because it's like, oh, that's a reminder of what Gilroy could have done but didn't and how much better it was because of that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, <laughs> there's there's a big difference. And like you can – I don't know if you feel this way, AJ, but I can tell when something – I can usually tell when something is written or created by a Latina person because mm-hmm. it's inherent in the text. It's just there. It just exists because that's our lived experience. You don't have mm-hmm. to research, you might have to research small things, but you don't have to research what it's like to live as a Latina person. You don't have to research what it's like to, to hear or not hear Spanish in your home, uh, different languages and how you interact with your family. It's inherent. It's a part of your life to some extent. And, um, you know, there are various aspects. Some people weren't brought up in the culture. Some people were. And so your own experiences come with it. And it means a lot when people understand that they can't have that inherency in their story because it's respectful and it's acknowledging where your knowledge is limited. And not only that, but it's giving people who might not otherwise have had an opportunity to tell this story the opportunity to tell this story. And I think that that is also so important because Tony Gilroy is a big name. <laughs> the Gilroy brothers are big names in Hollywood. And it would have meant so much to have him say, hey, you know what? I want to tell this story about Cassian and his backstory, his family. I'm going to bring in some people to write these three episodes and mm-hmm. then to advise on the rest yeah. of the story, where we can weave mm-hmm. this story in, where we can do this. And... I think that that would have been such a better, <laughs> such a better mm-hmm. um, story for Cassian's backstory because I don't see a Latina person looking at this script as a writer for the whole series, whole season, and not flagging the fact that certain things are never brought back up again. And that's mm-hmm. not to say that absolutely that's what would have happened because we are not a monolith, but 
I have spoken to so many Latina Star Wars fans and everyone, the one thing we can agree on is that Cassian's backstory and the Canari story was not handled well and that it, it could have and should have been handled better. You know, and I was thinking about Wakanda forever a lot during this. Um, and I'm not going to spoil anything that, you know, hasn't been brought up. Like, um, there's, there's one thing that was brought up after the movie came out that was about Namor's, um, view on the Spanish language. He calls it the language of the colonizers. Mm-hmm. That is what was missing with Canari. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. understanding that Cassian has an accent. Mm-hmm. Cassian was born speaking a language that is not galactic basic. That language, and th- this is coming as a historian whose focus was in linguistics, language is one of the most important things to humanity and to culture. And it affects nothing. Why even bring it up that he had a, that he spoke an indigenous language and never use that like, and, and never touch on that because Marva not only took him away from his people and his home, she took him away from his language. She took him away from his roots and that like that that's why i got like i still get a little like teary when i think about like wakanda forever when i think about namor and just both black panther movies in general really discuss the concept of colonialism and what could these cultures have been without it and that's a question that andor never discussed and i do think it is egregious to start the story as if that is going to be an important thing and then completely dismiss it for the rest of the story because you can't discuss the like you can't bring up the idea of colonialism and its impact on cassian's life and then never bring it up again like it is it does scream of what danielle said it does scream of using our pain as a trope you you know using the pain of specifically indigenous people and i'm not indigenous either but using the tropes of people of color to tell a a fun compelling story it's yeah and and that's one especially as you were just saying that danielle but also from both of you that i could really identify with because obviously i'm white so that particular experience you're talking about but as a queer person particularly a transgender non-binary person I cannot tell you how refresh I mean like mind-blowingly refreshing it was to watch the Umbrella Academy mm-hmm. season after Elliot Page had transitioned because it was very well known that they had brought queer writers, particularly non-binary and transgender um, uh, folks into the writing room. Because in that same way, I am so aware when a straight writer is writing a white, a queer character, especially a transgender character. Like, it's just very obvious. And I imagine a lot of people could say that in similar things, you know, um, about a, when someone's writing an experience that they haven't had. And I love what you said. That, like, it's, it's not that we're saying, like, that everyone should only write their own stories because that becomes a very balkanized world. But it's that, you know, like Ryan Coogler did, is, like, bring in someone and listen to them. That's what they did with Umbrella Academy. And I think there are some concerns about how some of that is treated in Wakanda Forever that we may actually get into a discussion with at a different point. Danielle, you know, you, you've raised some of that stuff on your tech talks. But, but again, it's not it's none of it saying that, that that's perfect, but just the, like – 
especially because I think the the point you just made, AJ, is so valid of when your story is being told because of its pain. Yeah. You know, um, I I still remember the first time I and someone who grew up in the eighties and nineties. The first time I saw a story about a gay man where AIDS was never mentioned, mm. like, mm. I mean, granted, yeah, at the time, like, there was a time at which it was an important story to tell, but it quickly became, like, the way to have some path, especially in romantic comedies. For a while, there was always the, the woman in the romantic comedy had a gay best friend who, like, just the shadow of AIDS, HIV was hanging over them. And it was a way to, like, show her being sympathetic and having some pathos in the story, an important story to tell, but just it was one group community's pain being wept, being used for the enjoyment of someone else. And where's so. where's the joy in that? It's that and that it's, yeah. it's such a, a a singular focus that they're using, and that's I think that's like kind of what I meant about using these wounds and not giving anything in return. Going hand in hand in that is using this pain and not showing any joy. For those same communities. Yeah. We didn't really get to see any joy in the Canary community. We didn't get to see any, you know, anything more. And a lot of that also, like you right. said, AJ has to do with because we couldn't communicate with them on a linguistic level. And mm. um, that's such a shame because we never, we get to see Cassian have this convoluted, complex relationship with Marva and, you know, to a lesser extent, Clem and his friends on Ferrix. Mm. We don't get to see that with his family on Canari. Yeah. And I think that's such a shame. And I was so upset about it after episode 11. Like I was really emotional after that. It took me a while to calm down from it. But like I wrote oh, just a short little thing, um, like 500 words of how I imagine Cassian would deal with these two halves of himself, Cassian and Cassa. Mm. And I feel like especially as a biracial, bicultural person, like not even just biracial, but bicultural, um, you understand what it's like to battle with those two halves of yourself to love both of them, but also resent at least one of them at some times. And to, to just have these feelings of like not wanting to regret what happened, but also regretting what happened and uh, wanting to blame someone, but not wanting to blame the people you love. And uh, it's such a, a complicated inner experience that mm. someone who's not experienced that before wouldn't know how to write. And I think that that comes across in it. And it was just, I wanted to see that in Cassian. I wanted to see his internal conflict uh, about this specific thing. And maybe we will get yeah. that in season two. I really hope we do, because mm -hmm, yeah. I think that would be a really beautiful thing to see. And it's, it's like you said, it's not even just that they wouldn't be able to write it. It's that it just doesn't cross their mind. Yeah. It's just, I've, I've had that moment where I've watched movies and you're just like, I never would have thought of this. Or I read something like you said, especially when I like, um, travel in queer circles. Like when I watch queer mm. media, I have those moments where I'm like, Holy crap. I never realized, you know, this, or I never would have seen it from that perspective. And, and that is why it's so important to have those diverse voices across your spaces. Like just the little things, like the whole Leaky Talokan mm -hmm. thing is taken from, you know, like from the culture. It's taken from Mayan architecture and design. And it was brought not by any of the writers, not by Ryan Coogler, but by the actors, by the people who understood that culture. And like, 
that's what's missing from a show like Andor's for all of its brilliance. It is like you said, it did kind of end as Tony Gilroy's vanity product project. I think that's a, a, a sadly poignant way to put the, the first season of Andor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say it's one part, his vanity project. It's one part, the thesis that he never got to write for his freshman uh, <laughs> intro to Russian history class. You know? The word count yeah. was too small to, for him to be able to write about it. Yeah. He wrote, exactly. he wrote Nimick's manifesto and was just like, I wanted to write this for class. They told me I couldn't. Yeah. He's been sitting on that paper for years. <laughs> and it's so sad because it's brilliant. I mean, it's whole oh, yeah. about that everywhere. Anyway, well, I really just want to echo kind of what you said as kind of our closing because, uh, like, I am just so grateful that two of you took your time to come on here because th- these were all issues that I think I had intellectual awareness of and hearing from you two as well some other great TikTok creators had helped me with. But I really feel like I've learned so much more about this listening to you two and I hope the listeners have as well. Um, and just because I think, again, like the fact that not all three, all three of us are not just saying here's one lockstep thing. It's that we're all kind of unsatisfied from it in mostly the same, somewhat different ways with somewhat different ideas of what could be worked. And it, it, to me, it just furthers the conversation, which is exactly what I want this podcast to do. So let me just kind of give the mics to you all. Uh, Danielle, starting with you, is there any of the last comments or questions you wanted to raise about the show? Um, not about the show specifically. I just wanted to thank you for having AJ and myself on here. Uh, it's really nice to be given the opportunity to talk about this uh, in a in a in an atmosphere that I don't feel guilty for saying what I feel, <laughs> um, because you have been a really big supporter of me and in my journey of um, uh, uncovering why I was feeling so uncomfortable with Marva and all oh, of God. this. And so I just want you to know that, like, I, I really appreciate that, and uh, it's so important for people from all marginalized communities to feel like they have a space that they can voice their concerns, and it will be taken seriously and where we don't have to feel like we have to reserve ourselves or hold ourselves back from that. And so really, truly, thank you. I'm very grateful for you allowing the space for us. Well, thank you. I, I'm, I'm, yeah. uh, onions are being cut somewhere. Uh, thank you. It, it does really mean a lot. I think this is, a, to me, someone really made a, a couple of points on, uh, we were talking about the fandom menace and, and the problems of Star Wars fandom a while ago, uh, particularly when um, Kenobi came out, all the hate against Reva and stuff like that. And someone, and a number of people made this point, but a couple, I don't forget who was really kind of started this idea. It was like, let's focus more on just building conversations among among ourselves instead of just always feeling like we have to respond to the haters. And so, yeah, it really means so much to me that I've gotten to connect with you more and your content. And uh, thank you. You know, and real quick before we move on to final thoughts, I want to echo what Danielle said um, specifically, whether this gets cut or not, because thank you for having this space and thank you, Danielle, for having these conversations. Like, I, I love your content, both of you, and especially Danielle, I love yours. And I have a tendency to still remove myself from these discussions within Latinidad, just because, as I said, I was raised with, with that is my culture. I didn't know my dad. I don't know that side. I experienced internally a certain way of life, but externally, mm-hmm. when I talk about that perception, it has always been white. Mm-hmm. And I find myself 
afraid still to engage in these conversations because I know that I am going to be perceived as a white man talking about things that aren't his business. And it is always a scary space to navigate. And I want to thank both of you for being so inviting and for listening and for having this space because, and I know Danielle, I know you know this as firsthand as well. It's, it's a tough thing to want to discuss these things and to want to have the, provide this voice, but not feeling like there's a safe space to do it. And, and so really thank you for allowing this conversation to take place. Cause I know we've kind of monopolized this conversation about this one topic, but, but it's, it's wonderful to be able to. No, I, I think I had a good sense that this was likely the main thing we'd be talking about. And I, I, I both didn't want it to be like, I get my two Latina friends to come on and talk about the Latina stuff. But, but it, instead it became, I think this was a very organic conversation that needed to happen. And it's funny also the way you're talking. Again, that's not a world I experience. But um, I remember as I was first starting to identify myself as non-binary, I told a friend who'd been helping me along, like, look, part of it's that, you know, I mean, I do... I am perceived as being masculine and I, you know, I, I don't continue to have a beard as a gender expression. I just have a very dumb looking chin and I think I look much better with one, but then I, it, it makes me, is that same thing of like, can I stand up and, and speak in those spaces? And, and my friend commented, look, imposter syndrome is pretty much a defining experience of being non-binary, <laughs> which really helped me. And I think that's, uh, to me, and it, it, again, it's that nuance because it's in the 20-second TikTok or the, the three-line tweet, tweet uh, as long as Twitter doesn't become a hellscape or whatever you think about that <laughs> happening right now. But like, it's hard to be able to say, oh, and by the way, here's the cultural background that I have that gives me some experience to talk on this topic. And it, it's just why I love these conversations. So... Um, Thank you both so much, uh, and, and thank you for what you said about this podcast, but I really want to give our listeners a chance. As I said, this is by no means your defining word on, on Andor or Star Wars or anything like that. So for folks who want to hear more of what you both are doing, uh, starting with you, AJ, where can they find your stuff? Um, the, like I said, you can find me anywhere um, at Jedi underscore Starkiller. You'll pretty much always find me if you look that up. TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, all that awesome. good stuff. And all that will be linked in the show and, notes. And Hinge. I mean, hi. <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> Look, like I said, I appreciate all forms of expression, you know. Um, um, I, I'm going to say that dating a listener, like there's a whole stuff about parasocial relationships that can get dangerous. But, you know, you do you. <laughs> <laughs> and Danielle, what about yourself? Uh, written in the Star Wars on TikTok, DannyS394 on Twitter, written in the SW on Instagram, and Hive. <laughs> Hive. Hive. I feel like I should. I feel Hive. like I should get some uh, compensation for this very funny advertising <laughs> I've done for them. <laughs> It's not yeah, yeah, we're doing a whole bunch high. of uh, Hive promos here, so we should uh, Hive, I, maybe not so much, but you know. I need Hive to take off so that I can have the same username on both and talk about, like, you can find me on the birds and the bees. Like, it's oh, right! Like it. It's like right it. there! I like it. That's a good one. That's, That's a good one. Alright, well, thank you both so much. Um, and, of course, my content is all under The Ethical Panda. Google that, and you'll find all the ways to find me. The easiest thing to do, though, is to go to theethicalpanda.com, the website. Uh, especially there, you'll find all the ways to give us feedback. 
Um, probably the next episode we do is specifically going to be a Star Wars feedback episode. We've got a lot of it. Paul's going to be coming back out of hibernation, and we'll have a lot to talk about there. Uh, but we'd love to know, what are your thoughts? How do, how, where have you been feeling on the questions of Marva or, or other stuff about Andor? How did this episode maybe give you new things to think about or things you disagree with or agree with? Definitely let us know. Email, Twitter, uh, Facebook. For a while, the emails were going to the wrong place. I have fixed that. I will now be getting your emails. Some of the feedback I'll be responding to will be feedback from like May and June. I apologize. Um, but it'll all be there. Of course, there you can also find the other podcasts I do, uh, particularly the Superhero Ethics Podcast. Uh, we've had con- uh, recently content coming out about, like I said, Gossip Girl. Uh, we just did something on uh, Sandman uh, in which we kept the thirst for the Sandman to a somewhat minimal <laughs> level. It was there because, God, that man is gorgeous. Uh, but it's me and Ashley Coffin. But we had a lot to say about that. We have a Rings of Power episode coming out. Um, I will be, once again, trying to find someone to join me to talk about Gossip Girl because as someone who went to as someone who went on scholarship to the school that show is based on, I think surviving in an Upper East Side high school is absolutely a superpower. <laughs> so it definitely qualifies for superhero ethics. Uh, so we have a lot of great stuff coming on. Thank you so much to all of you for listening. AJ and Danielle, thank you so much for making this a great conversation. And to all of you, keep fighting your own revolution. Revolution.